Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through July 2019, best of the blog, on all the interesting things we've been up to. But before I get onto that, a little couple of quick notices if that's all right. First is we've got the Resuscitology course coming to Manchester on December the 14th this year. That's being run with Cliff Reed. Really interesting day looking at the the why things happen and how we can improve the quality of our really high stakes resuscitation. So if you're interested in that, you can whiz onto the blog and book online and we'd love to see you there in Manchester. Second announcement is that the MSc in emergency medicine is now recruiting for the 2019-2020 cohort. Again, you can see the little advert on the blog site. Have a look on there. That's now open to nurses and doctors and is a brilliant three-year online MSc in emergency medicine. We've had loads of really great people that you'll know from the blog, people like Yanis Bayombe, Alan Grace and Natalie May have all been through it. It's a fantastic program. So get onto that. And in 2020, we're hoping that that will also be available in a form for paramedics as well. So lots and lots of progress there. And also a shout out to the conferences we're going to be attending soon. So St. Emlyn's is going to be at USEM. It's going to be at the European Resuscitation Council meeting in Slovenia. It's going to be at the ACHEM meeting over in India fairly soon. So you'll see us out and about at the various different conferences. If you see us there, come and say hello. Tell us what you think of the blog. Tell us what you think of the podcast and get in touch and give us a hand to make it even better. So what about July? What did we get up to in July? Well, we started off with a blog post from our friend Zaf Kasim, who is now over in the States, but trained with us originally in Virchester as an emergency physician. He's built a real reputation for himself around uh, endovascular resuscitation, Reboa and ECMO and things like that. He's a really great guy. And he got together with a chap called Rashid Akil, who is out there in Pakistan, to talk about the management of natural disasters, terrorist attacks and major incidents. And it's something which we in the West perhaps don't always recognise in that there's a great deal of skill, experience and expertise about the management of disasters and major incident medicine out there in places like Pakistan. And this blog is an interview that goes through the experience of how surgeons, physicians, emergency physicians in places like Karachi and Pakistan deal with some really fairly challenging and difficult um, incidents, such as the 20, well, 2005 Kashmiri earthquake as an example of a natural disaster, but also some of the mass casualty incidents in relation to crime and terrorism. There's a little video on there showing how they put together their research and training packages for this, and a good explanation from Rashid about how They've built a system pretty much from scratch, really, and developed, distributed the expertise around there. So if you're from a lower middle income country or you're just generally interested in disaster medicine or you're interested in global health, I think this is a really interesting blog. You can go and have a look at the comments. You can go and have a look at the video that's been put together of their training exercise. And you can understand how you can take a system which has to deal with these sort of incidents but is not really very well prepared and how to develop a course and then a training exercise to actually resolve that. And I think it's a really good example of the fact that in lower middle income countries, we have some amazing clinicians who are doing fantastic work. Then we had a blog from Chris Gray. Well, actually, it's the blog based on the talk that he did back in October last year at the St. Edmunds Live conference, talking about the management of major GI hemorrhage. And I don't know about you, but 
the patient who comes in who's hypotensive after a major upper GI bleed or lower GI bleed, they're a really challenging group of patients, particularly the upper GI bleed ones because you've got all the issues around the airway and managing that at the same time when these patients are often vomiting and have an unstable airway, high risk of aspiration, high risk of cardiovascular um, instability. So there's lots and lots of tips in there about how to manage these patients. So in terms of the airway, things like making sure that you resuscitate before you intubate, they're often hypovolemic, making sure that you've got great positioning, putting the head of the bed up, not trying to intubate the patient flat, obviously. Um, using laryngoscopy, probably more of a role for video laryngoscopy in this group of patients if you can't see with a DL. Um, but again, that's a controversial one. Don't want to get into that on the blog um, or the podcast at the moment. And lots and lots of use of suction. And you may have come across the salad technique, which I think is Jim DeCanto's technique. You may have seen that demonstrated. We certainly had it at the St. Emelin's Live conference back last year about how to manage the airway where you've got a lot of fluid coming up. And I think if you're the sort of person who's going to be managing this group of patients, you need to be expert and you need to understand how to ensure that you've got a got a good view, how you can cope with large quantities of gastric contents coming up at the same time as trying to manage the airway. There's clearly the issue around managing these patients on critical care, about having to control their bleeding, a use of things like the Sengstack and Blakemore tube, which, to be honest, quite frankly, I don't think I've ever seen used. Maybe once when I was a house officer, which is a very long time ago, let me tell you. But it's not something we use on a regular basis, certainly in the emergency department in the UK. But I'd be interested to hear about your experience in other settings. We talked about the use of PPIs, not really shown to be of benefit in GI bleeds. Um, probably doesn't make a difference if you're bleeding that much to reduce the amount of acid in the stomach. But in terms of things that are good, in terms of acids, tranexamic acid, well, interestingly, we're waiting for that at the moment. There's a good, well, there's a fairly good pathophysiological argument that using things like TXA are good in all bleeding disorders. So should they should potentially work in GI bleeds as well. But actually, the evidence isn't strictly there yet. There is a trial in the UK, the Holtit trial, which we were recruiting to in Virchester. That's due to report, I think, very soon. And that was a randomised controlled trial of TXA in major GI bleeds. So it's a bit controversial about using TXA at the moment. I think my practice, now that the trial has stopped, is I am using it. I've got to, I've got to admit that. Um, I think I did have clinical equipoise when the trial was running. But now, having seen TXA of benefit in such a range of patients. I think it's probably on balance worth doing now, but please wait until we see the trial before you put it into your guidelines and make it uh, absolutely the thing that we should be doing. Also, use of things like telepressin to reduce mortality if you've got a variceal bleed. And it's a real controversy and a real difficulty I find sometimes in the ED is you'll see a patient who comes in with a large GI bleed. And if you know they've got varices, great, knock yourself out, give them telepressin. If you don't know they've got a GI bleed from varices, I think it's quite difficult sometimes to decide whether or not to give. So the patient who's got obvious liver failure, who's got ascites and the yellow, probably on balance going to give it. But if you don't know, you probably shouldn't be doing because it, it can cause gut ischemia and cause other problems as well. Antibiotics um, have been shown in RCTs to reduce the mortality in major GI bleeds. So that's something which doesn't necessarily spring to mind because you don't think of it as a septic condition, but is also worth doing. Then we're talking about uh, transfusion, um, clearly an issue in this group of patients. And in my practice, we're really managing them in a very similar way to the way that we address major bleeds, such as from trauma. And that's giving blood one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one if we can do. We're increasingly using things like TEG and Rotem to guide resuscitation because a lot of these patients have pre-existing 
uh, coagulopathy, particularly the, the cirrhotics or the, the patients who've got varices from their alcoholic liver disease, they're difficult to manage and it's not quite clear what's going on. So have a think about that and think about whether you've got more advanced ways of looking at your coagulation in, well, close to real time, such as Teg and Rotem, as opposed to the usual sort of fairly delayed uh, INR, PT, APTT tests, which, you know, by the time you get them back, obviously, you're often so far down the line, you, they're telling you that they're historical. They're not telling you what's going on now. They're telling you what was going on an hour ago, and that's not terribly useful. Now, endoscopy, very useful for this group of patients, um, clearly very important. We have done endoscopy in the ED for this group of patients. Endoscopy as a bit of kit and also the people is actually quite mobile. So in, in a small group of patients who are very difficult to manage, who are very unstable, you can scope them in the ED. But, you know, it's not seen something which we've done very often, but could be and could be a role for um, a technique to be used in the ED critical care unit. Um, nice paper, actually, from Scott Weingarten and colleagues about the ED critical care unit. And increasingly in some of the departments I see in the UK, that's essentially what the resource room is becoming. It is a critical care area. Well, it's always been a critical care area, but we're actually doing a lot more critical care interventions within that environment. Chris also talks about things like interventional radiology and how you approach this as a person, how you develop your own skills as you go forward and ensure that you're prepared to manage a very challenging group of patients. So I like this. I think the presentation is good. The the comments on the blog are good. Um, I'd strongly advise you to have a look at that because this is one of the most challenging group of patients that we see in the ED. Then we went over to something which is a little bit odd in the emergency medicine world. Perhaps it's not something that you've ever diagnosed. Um, I'll be admit, I'll probably admit this one. It's not something I've diagnosed either. And that's the uh, problems with listeria infections. Mm, interesting. I'm um, not seeing it very much, but we recently in the UK had a major problem with an outbreak of listeriosis amongst patients who were immunocompromised, who actually contracted the disease whilst they were in hospital. It came through the hospital food chain. Very interesting. Um, but... Um, unfortunately, that's some very um, awful outcomes for the patients. So listeriosis, not something I've seen a huge amount of. Um, it's usually benign, self-limiting, but it can cause significant problems in the elderly, the pregnant, um, and in newborn babies and anybody who's immunocompromised. So it is one of the things to keep in your mind when you see patients within those groups who come in, perhaps with fever, diarrhea, almost almost always they've got diarrhea, um, lasting for a few days and maybe hasn't resolved, or they're, they're more sick than you expect. Their, their symptoms are more um, dramatic than you would expect from a simple gastrointestinal illness, particularly in those special risk groups that we talked about. How are you going to pick it up? Usually from peripheral blood cultures, which means that it's perhaps not a diagnosis that you're going to make in the ED, but an argument is that in groups of patients in whom you see maybe a, a GI-related uh, illness who are sicker than you think or in those special risk groups, then taking blood cultures is still a good idea. Um, it may not help you, but it may help somebody else a little bit further down the line. Then our next post of interest was the Great Day Paradox. Now, this got quite a bit of um, traffic on Twitter and was designed to support a talk I did at Don't Forget the Bubbles, looking at the procedure paradox. And what the procedure paradox means is that when you come home or when you do a shift and you go home and you maybe talk about it and you go, oh, it's amazing today, you know, do some crazy stuff. We intubated this patient, they had a massive GI bleed and they were really sick and they had a systolic 60. Or this patient came in and they were stabbed and, oh my God, it was like amazing. And then we did a thoracotomy and we put some stables into the right ventricle and they're on critical care and it's just awesome. And... It was. I mean, those are the things which energize a lot of people who enjoy emergency medicine critical care. But it is a paradox. The paradox is that that's the worst possible day 
for the patient. In fact, it could even be their last day. And that's that's traumatic in itself. And that, that paradox between us being energised and excited by what are awful events and the other side, which is the, the intervention to the patients, is, is pretty tough. And I, going back, I got this idea from Alex Psyrides on a smack talk um, where he talks about the experience on the critical care unit, which I think is very similar to the ED. You know, he had this idea. It was really good, actually really funny. You know, doctors think ECMO is fun. Patients, no, it is not fun. And then things like ketamine. Well, we all enjoy ketamine and helicopters. But Reboa, doctors, really cool. Patients, not cool, not fun, not good. And so we've adapted that and put it together with um, ideas around, particularly around um, pediatrics, because it was a don't forget the bubbles talk. But I would advocate you read this if you're interested in the philosophy of emergency medicine, one of the big themes that we have on the website. So there's the procedure paradox. There's the idea that every procedure has two indications. And this relates very strongly back to John Hines' work. Um, that firstly, the patient may require it. And secondly, you might want to do it. And that's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, perhaps, because I've seen people who want to do procedures, they're desperate to do procedures. And you've got to sometimes pull them back and say, well, actually, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. And therefore, it's not the right thing to do. You shouldn't do it. And our desire to do procedures, our desire to do stuff shouldn't outweigh the need and the responsibility to look after the patients and honour their intentions, honour our intentions to do the right thing. Now, it's one of those things which gave me a little bit of thought over the years. And I thought, oh, gosh, are we truly terrible people for wanting to do this sort of stuff? And that went on for quite a while until I met up with a psychologist, not professionally. Well, kind of professionally, but I wasn't, I wasn't having psychotherapy, okay. And, but we got talking about this sort of thing. And I thought she was going to say, well, you know, you're collectively weird and you're all a bit strange. And she wasn't along that lines at all. What she said was that it's, it's great. It's great that there are people like you and people like me out there who want to do this stuff because if they're injured, if their family's injured, they want people to be in the moment who are energized, not fearful. They want to be there. They're capable of doing a bit, doing the, the task. They're trained to do the task and they can achieve rather than just to be scared or emotionally distracted by the other things that are going on. Now, that's not means you should be sort of cold robots and you should get rid of all that stuff. But in the moment, we need to be able to focus and to be able to operate in that information light, time critical zone, which is emergency medicine critical care. And that sometimes means that we have to be the kind of people we are, which is great people. And we do great things. And that's fun. So have a look at that. It is a bit philosophical, um, but it did get quite quite a bit of um, feedback on Twitter. Positive, I'd like to say. And I thought it was a, a useful thing for us all to think about because we should reflect on how we do in emergency medicine. Next post up was from uh, Rich Carden, um, looking at the use of intravenous... <laughs> intravenous, inferior vena cava filters in major trauma patients. This is something which is been around for quite a long time. The problems we know that major trauma patients, any major patient really has a risk of pulmonary embolus. And there's been controversy about whether or not we need to place IVC filters in this group of patients to prevent them getting PE, particularly things, you know, patients have got like major lower limb fractures or pelvic fractures. This is an RCT published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, 240 severely injured patients, so that's ISS more than 15. 
And what they showed in this, and you can read all the details in the blog, and I'd recommend you do that and read the full paper. Let's face it, go and read the proper paper and make your own mind up. But the conclusion was that early prophylactic therapy with a vena cava filter after major trauma did not result in a lower incidence of symptomatic pulmonary embolism or death at 90 days. So I think it's one of those studies which has raised a little bit of controversy out there. Um, it certainly suggests that we shouldn't be routinely doing these, but there will potentially always be patients in whom it is the right thing to do on a patient by patient basis. And I think that's something you would take up with your major trauma consultants in whichever centre it is that you're working in. Then we've got another presentation from St. Emmons Live. It's Psychological Performance in the Recess Room by Ashley Liebig. This is another presentation and is available as a podcast, which hopefully you've listened to already um, on the site. And it's about Ashley's experience of working in um, Starflight in Texas and how she works as a team member around the issues around human factors, crew resource management, about managing the self, the team and the environment that we work in. Very similar to what we talked about with the zero point survey, but practically making that happen is really important. And I know that Ashley's gone on to do this sort of work in uh, the Resus TO conference, which is running, I think, around about now um, and in other settings as well. And I always like listening to Ashley. She has a brilliant perspective on life and a huge amount of experience. So again, if that's the sort of area that you're interested in and you should be, then go and have a look at that. And then lastly, I've got a, a little General Club post, I've mentioned it already today, about the resuscitative care unit or the ED critical care unit. This is a paper that appeared in the EMJ and it's the idea that, and it's reality, isn't it? It's the same damn patients, you know, they go from pre-hospital care, they come into the emergency department, they're critically ill there and then they go on to intensive care. And the idea really is that we should be able to manage the critically ill patients in the resource room effectively. But what this also mentions is the fact there's quite a few patients who require relatively short periods of critical care, what's colloquially known in Virchester as the bed and breakfast admission. So these are things like overdoses, um, some head injuries who get tubed for scan, who then need a period of, of intubation and then waking up potentially, see how they're doing. And it's a possibility that we could set up an outreach critical care unit attached to the ED to manage that group of patients. It also allows an area where you can potentially increase the utility, well not the utility, the use of more interventional procedures such as ECMO, Reboa and uh, VAD management and things like that. So quite interesting. This, the paper's from a variety of different authors and they've all got slightly different models. I suppose many of us will be familiar with Scott Weingart and his work which shows ED critical care can do some work, can do some um, significant benefit. But I, I would have a look at this. There's also work in JAMA, which I reference in here, looking at whether or not this can make a difference to mortality. And it would seem that if you do have an ED critical care, then there are significant benefits from the use of an ED critical care unit. So follow those links off to the JAMA article on the Association of Emergency Department based ICU with survival. So you know, if you're redesigning your ED, if you're working with your ICU team, which you should be doing, then maybe this is something you should think about. And actually, to be honest, in places where I work, this is effectively a direction of travel, largely because we have on our ED team, I think now five consultants who are um, part-time ED, part-time ICU. And that relationship has allowed us to build a, a good resuscitation unit. Could always do more, but it's a good one. So that's it. Um, have a think about the resuscitology course. Have a think about the MSc in emergency medicine. We'd love you to come and join that. Um, 
DM me, email me, follow the blog, leave some feedback in the blog. I'll tell you more about it. If not before next month, I um, hope to see you at a conference soon or one of the St. Emily's team at least and have a great time. Enjoy your emergency medicine and we will speak to you soon. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the blog and the podcast have grown. And now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emeline's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time.